In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. There is a parable from Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov that has haunted me since I first read it years ago. An old woman who had led a very wicked life died suddenly one evening and fell into hell. Her guardian angel sought to plead for her before God, seeking still her salvation. And God reminded the angel that once in her life she had plucked up an onion from her garden and given it to a beggar. God granted that very onion to the angel to extend to the woman in hell and by it to pull her up. The angel did so, and as the woman was lifted up, others in hell clung to her and begged her to carry them with her. Disdainfully, the woman kicked them away and said, This is my onion, mine alone. And in the moment she spoke, the onion snapped. By her hateful words, she had sealed her fate, having rejected compassion and thus redemptive love. While this parable is not designed to be a nuanced theological statement about the afterlife, it does helpfully illuminate the connection between our lessons this morning, which both focus on the practice of forgiveness. In the gospel lesson, Jesus initiates this work of forgiveness by binding it to an act of healing. Son, he says to the paralytic, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. For our Lord, the work of healing the man's physical condition is one with the act of absolving him of his sins. Nor does Jesus go into any particularly long explanation of how the mystery of sin is causally related to the emergence of things like paralysis. He simply speaks with power to heal both body and soul. And those gathered, quote, marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. St. Matthew's telling of the healing miracle is an abbreviated form of the account in St. Mark's Gospel. There we see the memorable story of friends who, finding uh, crowds surrounding Jesus in a house they wish to enter, lower their friend through the roof to lay him at Jesus' feet in the shade of the house below. In St. Mark's telling, the healing miracle is told in such a way as to evoke the image of a burial, of friends doing a final service for a friend who is beyond their help. As Jesus heals him and forgives him of all his sins, the man getting up and going his way is an image of resurrection, of a new life where once there was only death. Every healing miracle of Christ is conformed ultimately to the path between these two points. Every time we heal and every time we are forgiven, it is a journey between death and resurrection life. Every healing miracle is a sign to illuminate and to direct our call as followers of Christ to practice the common forms of healing and forgiveness that are afforded to us, available to us, and to use them for his sake and in his name. To do so is to receive in every instance of doing so new life, 
And to refuse to do so is to persist in death. St. Paul clearly unites these realities in his teaching. This is the most obvious in his second letter to the Corinthians, where he writes, quote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Paul understands how the practice of forgiveness and unity among the community of the church is an expression of Christ drawing the church into union with the Father through the Spirit. Our participation in this work is, at the same time, our participation in the resurrection itself of Jesus, making all things new. And this is why, when he writes to the Ephesians in our epistle lesson this morning, he hinges the practice of communal life on that very transformation from death to life. Quote, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. This contest of death and life is ultimately what infuses all ethical questions of the Christian life. But we overly limit the range of that saving work if we think that by putting off the old man we're talking about something merely for ourselves, or that putting on the new is something we do as a kind of self-help project. Forgiveness is not possible if we approach it as a function of a self-help endeavor. The practice of forgiveness is an act of healing in community, because it is a way that having the old man being put off of us and being put on with the new man, we offer that same putting off and putting on to another. We put off the old man of another when we forgive them. And we, in that forgiveness, put on them a new man that is only possible in the name of Christ. After all, there are some wounds of body and soul that in our own experience we know we cannot put off by ourselves, no matter how much we want to do so. Neither can we put on healing of these wounds, except that another person puts it on for us. It is an exercise in the virtues that are given to us in the spirit to practice this work of reconciliation and forgiveness. It requires faith, always, to see in one another the person God is making them to be even before they have become it. It takes hope to earnestly expect that God will, in his time, perfect that work of creation. And it takes charity to move our will to participate in that redemption. We are not called to practice reconciliation among the brethren because it makes us merely nice people. We do it because to work out peace 
compassion, forgiveness, and love is to be alive and whole, whereas to practice malice, deceit, and grudge-bearing, it wounds us, and if left unchecked, will kill us. Understanding that forgiveness is the way we are already participating in the resurrection, though, does not make it, as a practice, any easier. The way is set before us clearly in the scriptures, but it will still be a difficult path to walk. We have to begin walking that path by being aware of the false visions of reconciliation that St. Paul names and warns us against, the ones of deceit and slander and theft and hate. And as surprising as it may seem, these are all of the world's ways of dealing with offense and relational wounds. They are the world's versions of reconciliation that are not really reconciliation at all. They are an avoidance, trying to patch things up relationally without ever having to depend on the spirit. We practice deceit in attempting to reconcile apart from God, in that we admit to ourselves or we try to convince ourselves that no one can or has in fact hurt us. We live in a lie that we are invincible, that no one can really do us any harm. We move on to slander in St. Paul's logic when the myth of our invincibility falters. And so we try to prop up that myth still by tearing down others through indirect conversations and insinuations that seem to make them less and less so that we can appear, even if by only appearance, to be more. Slander ultimately leads to thefts when we give up the indirect and we start to work on directly diminishing another by directly taking from them, doing everything we can to make them less substantial so that they cannot be the one who has done us harm. We'll do anything to them to avoid admitting that they have done something to us. And this gives way to hate, as we find our words, as destructive as they are, cannot ultimately change others or their perceptions. And so we begin to earnestly wish for a world in which that person who offended us first, but then eventually everyone else does not exist. And this is the point at which St. Paul warns us that we will, in refusing to reconcile in the spirit, make our hearts a hospitable home for the devil, a little corner of hell. Forgiveness, though, real forgiveness, is the difficult path through these temptations and is possible only because of Christ's death and resurrection. It begins not with deceit, but with honesty, with each other, yes, but also with ourselves. It is to be able to say, ouch, and mean it. You hurt me. And me being hurt, or me hurting you, just reminds me that all of us can keep getting hurt. And to sit in that uncomfortable fact. Forgiveness acknowledges that something wrong was done, and that this experience of hurt is one that others have also known. By the Spirit who searches all things, we can, in admitting this thing, start to find those minute threads of connection between our wounds and the wounds of others. And so we grow in compassion, to use St. Paul's word, of suffering together, and of patience, 
of suffering long. If we've been wounded, we come at this point to see that all that we can contribute to the relational rupture is, again, ultimately either death or life. Forgiveness flowers as we will to participate in Christ's reconciling ministry by giving as much as we can the pardon and peace that we have received from him. We have to note that doing this, offering this pardon and peace, can feel like agony for us. And in that agony, we can relate to our Lord. After all, it was agony for him to offer pardon and peace. We may find that we cannot offer much in proportion to the apparent scale of some wounds. But we are always called to modify a phrase from our late Archbishop John Charles, to forgive as we can, and not to worry about forgiving as we can't. In my own practice, there are times when the hurt feels so great that all I can offer in the moment I remember those hurts far away from any grand and noble gesture of pardon, is this small prayer, and you might find it helpful. Lord, on the judgment day, please do not, for my sake, hold the things they have done against them. And that's all. That can be the beginning. Even a vulnerable, fledgling, and kind of pathetic prayer like that can be the beginning of salvation. Forgiveness is why we are gathered here today for Mass. In a moment, we will turn to the Eucharist, and on the way there, we will ask God to forgive us and to loose us from the intolerable burden of our sins. Like the paralytic, before we can get up and move forward to the altar, we will need Jesus to say to us, Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. But we must know that in moving forward to receive him, we will be called again to offer the healing we receive in the lives, in our lives, to those in our lives who need it as well. As you arise to receive communion today, perhaps offer just a small measure of pardon for someone in your life toward whom you have the ability to lighten the intolerable burden of their wounds and their sins against you. Is this not, ultimately, what we all hope to receive from everyone in the end? And especially those of us who, if you're anything like me, need an extra dose of mercy all the time. To borrow once more from Dostoevsky and a prayer of one of his characters, let me be guilty of everything before everyone so that everyone will forgive me. And wouldn't that be heaven itself? And of course, as we all pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.